The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. God reminded me this morning that he's never forgotten me. And I know there's some of y'all in here that you feel like God forgot you. But because of what you're going through, how much trauma you've been through, some of y'all babies have seen things that you should not have seen. Grown folks in here have experienced things and trauma that you should not have. So when you hear when God loves you so much that the afflictions that you experience in this lifetime are not even comparable to his grace, that should give you joy. A joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning to remember what he has done for us, to remember who we ought to come to. Amen, somebody. Well, I'll, let me do one housekeeping thing because Richard mentioned this last week. If you're a visitor with us, please sign uh, the end of that bulletin. We love to keep up with you right at the end of your bulletin. You will see this little sheet right here. Sign that, put your info. We'd love to know who you are. We'd love to get to know you. You've probably been visiting us for a while. And so we will not spook you out. We're not scary at all. We're lovely people. Amen, somebody. Uh, speaking of visiting, my, my, my mother-in-law who uh, brought along the beauty, the most beautiful woman in America, Serena Davis. My mother-in-law is all the way from Kansas City, Missouri. So we thank you for coming. And she spent time with MJ. He's kept her busy. Amen. Before we dive into God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you because you remind us of how much you love us. We thank you, Jesus, because you're one, as Sade reminded us, that we can come to. And as we've been singing so, so much about you being Emmanuel, how close you are to us, and that we've also been singing how, how much your love uh, washes over us. And then we also have been reminded of, of who we are in you. So Jesus, all of that, help us to hear your word. Use me as an empty vessel to fill the hearts of your people. And also, Lord, to speak to those who are looking and seeking for truth. I ask now, Lord, that you think with my mind and speak with my mind so that these words and the things that go before it are blessed and used for your glory. It is in Jesus' mighty name, all God's people say. The article that I read was in the New York Times and it was titled this. Prozac Nation is now the United States of Ant uh, Xanax. It's by Alex Williams, who talks about a 37-year-old woman who lives in Brooklyn and is a social media consultant. This young lady, she sent a message to her friend who is in Oregon saying, I am planning my visit. Will you please text me back? Not responding promptly, her friend uh, did not know when she was coming or what she was doing, but Immediately, she, Sarah Fader, got on social media, and guess what she did? She said, I struggle with this reality, and I quote her, if you are a human being living in 2017, you are not, and you are not anxious. There is something wrong with you. 
because she struggled with generalized anxiety disorder, what happened was she immediately thought about the fears of her friend not responding. When I don't hear from my friend for a day, my thought is that you they don't want to be my friend anymore. And so then the hashtag became famous. The hashtag and what she somewhat subtweeted was, this is what anxiety feels like. Thousands upon thousands have responded and they still respond today because this article was last year in 2017. And they've said things such as, you are reading my mail. You know my heart. This is exactly the way that I feel. And as they have all responded, it is clear that Sarah touched a nerve that many of us struggle with in our culture and in our society. And that is with anxiety. And that is with fear, which causes us to be a very restless culture. To be a very restless culture. It is safe to say that none of us are held bound from the yoke of fear. They're held bound from the yoke of failure, of anxiety. Certainly, many of us are burdened with loneliness and depression at times. And we would all say we'd love to be yoke-free or burden-free. Amen, somebody. However, I would venture to say this text proves us differently. This text shows us that it's not necessarily about being burden free. Not everything is about being yoke free. Listen, Christ presents to us the invitation, the greatest invitation to all of our needs. And that is that he presents an easy yoke and a light burden. And when you understand that notion, then you would say yokelessness and burdenlessness does not equate to restfulness or resting in Christ. That's what I want you to take this morning. If you were to put that in your bag, I want you to know that yokelessness and burdenlessness does not equate to restfulness or resting in Christ. Three main thoughts that I want us to expound upon as we look at this text is this, is that we have to experience this invitation to restfulness in Christ through repentance, through humility, and through a growing knowledge of God. Through repentance, through humility, and through a growing knowledge of God. First of all, it is repentance because even when we think about what John is doing at the beginning of this passage, right there in verse 3 of chapter 11, you hear someone ask to him, are you the one who is to come? Or should, shall we look for another? Come. I want you just to circle that word in your Bible because essentially when you get down and you start doing your exegetical work you can come all the way down to verse 28 where he says come to me but then you can also look right before that and you see that God is revealing himself as he says come to me but first of all I want us to deal with an issue that I would think and I don't want to say an issue as a problem but something we don't think as the preacher John proclaims I was reading Fleming Rutledge in Christianity Today's article, and he essentially made the claim that we emphasize baby Jesus, but we don't do what the preacher John does, emphasize the judge. 
When you think about that reality, then you understand that emphasizing Jesus as judge at the incarnation changes your perspective as the one who is to come and your security and peace in the one that you have. Right? Because he's the one that bangs the gavel. He's the one that ultimately makes the decisions and governs your life. And when you think about that, Does that give you a sense of security? Does that give you a sense of restfulness? I want you to look at verse 28. Because they asked John, was he one to come? But no, Jesus says he is the one. He says, come to me. And this invitation affirms the fact that rest incarnate is Christ. Come to me also says that he is wisdom incarnate. The one that you should seek after. He's the very embodiment of the rest that we're looking for. Jesus himself does not send you to anyone else. He does not tell his disciples or all of the people that are around him, go to God. He says, come to me. What a declaration. No deity has ever said that. No one has ever been able to make that claim. But Jesus himself revealing himself says, come to me emphatically, inviting us and his readers to lay down everything that we hold to. So you don't think that you hold on to the anxiety. You think that it attacks you. You may not think that you hold on to every burden. You think that it it attacks you. But the language and how it's written here, when he says, come to me, it's not in, in, in a way that he is trying to condemn. Commentator says, what grace is this? That God should come to seek his rebellious subjects with no word of condemnation on his lips. He doesn't say, come to me, you rebellious people. He doesn't say, come to me, you filthy, sick, self-righteous people. But because he understands his children, he says, come to me, the very person that is laboring, the very person that is heavy burdened, the very person that is broken. Come to me. Do you hear him talking to you this morning? Because God doesn't change the way that he asks this or that he makes this. He says, come to me even this morning. Your mind is wondering. And you're thinking about various different things. And you say, I've been coming to Jesus for a long time. But the question is, have you trusted him? Because that's why I say through repentance. Jesus has come to call every single sinner. And if you do not see yourself as a sinner this morning, then you're dealing with self-righteousness in your own hearts, in your own minds. And why does he call us to a continual life of repentance? Because it leads us to to actually rest, not in our own rest, not in some own form, but in a Christ-centered rest. Rest that is held upon the only rock. Because this hashtag does not, this is the anxiety that I feel, does not necessarily only apply to where we are, to that young lady, but it applies also to what Jesus is saying to all who are laboring, all who are laborious, all who are who are wearisome, and every person who is heavy laden. And that word heavy laden is actually one in which it looks at the things that affected you in the past and how they're still affecting you in the present. So what he is saying that 
Essentially, the stress, the depression, the shame, the anxiety, the anxiousness, all of that, which describes how exhausted and tired because you feel overused. You have felt abused by society and you are carrying all of this on your on all this heavy load on your shoulders, this pressure on your shoulders. And you think to yourself, how can you make it in life? How? What are you going to then? What are you trusting in? How have you repented? When you think about the notion in which one repents, you may not associate it with rest. You may only associate it with the fact that I'm 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 just making that 180, right? I'm just turning from my sins. But when you think about the things that you turn from, I want you to think about how they cause you so much pain and stress. So then that turning is is not to look back at them, but it's to move forward to rest. I don't think I heard me this morning. Because what Jesus is saying is this, is that I know what you've been going through. And I understand how hard it is. But it's not that I want you to carry it. In fact, I want you to relinquish it. But does he only say this to believers? Does he only say this to the disciples? The text says, come to me all. Pass. All who labor, all, every single individual who is feeling this, come to me. All. What does that say? It has an, an, it has an evangelistic bent to it. It says that even when you see people who are hopeless, even when you are walking around and you see things and you're like, I don't know if this world is going to change. What Jesus is saying, when you think about it, come to me. When you read the news, come to me. When you're feeling overwhelmed, come to me. When you don't feel like you've done a good job at work, come to me. When you feel like you're broken, you've been bent and you can't change, I want you to come to me. Why? See, if you were thinking about who Jesus is primarily talking to, a lot of times in the Bible, he's talking to the people who are poor. He's talking to those who are marginalized, who are oppressed. Sometimes we don't we don't want to hear that. Sometimes we don't. Well, how is he talking to me? I, 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 I may have some change in my pocket. What is, what is he saying? He says, come to me, poor and rich, Jew and Greek, single mother, house mom, man who has a full time job, a brother who's working at the temp agency. Come to me. Alcoholic, come to me, addict, come to me, widow, come to me, divorcee, come to me, adulterer, come to me, prostitute, come to me, homeless, come to me, South Memphis, come to me, Midtowner, come to me, North Memphian, come to me, Downtowner, come to me, East Memphis, I don't care where you are, come to me. This coming means that we are no longer running. And when we come to him, we also not only lay down these weary burdens, but we also continue to run from intimate emptiness by running to him and not our shallow truths. The shallow truths that chase us down exhaust us. 
They stress us because we don't know a deity that actually calls us to repent and rest in him. In fact, this rest that we ought to receive is associated deeply to the sabbatical rest that we are called to remember as a holy day in Exodus 20. But I want you to think about this. That it's not simply this idea of of sleep or this this only one notion in which we rest because we don't do anything. It is also this idea of peace, security and refreshing. When Jesus says this, he's pointing to the fact that he is the one that gives us peace and security that leads to human prosperity. And we're not talking about a prosperity gospel. We're talking about a human prosperity that actually allows the person to trust in Jesus no matter the circumstance. Have you ever rode on, have you ever flown on a plane? You ever fly on that plane and you're in deep REM sleep? That REM sleep Richard was talking about last week? Mouth wide open, snoring. You slumped over. People have taken pictures of me, of me on the plane. And I told them, I may be a pastor, but I'm not ashamed to put you on blast. <laughs> yeah, I see y'all pointing at me. You got pictures of me. But you're in that deep sleep and the flight attendant passed you by 17 times with those Biscoff cookies and that ginger ale. And you just knocked out your, 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 part, your person sitting next to you, not even waking you up. And see, when I sit on a plane, I try to make sure that the person that tries to sit next to me understands that they cannot out-elbow me or leg-room me. So I sit on a plane and I make sure when I get in that plane, it was one time I was sitting on a plane and the brother just spread his legs all the way out his elbow. I'm like, no, bro. No, sir. <laughs> we, we, it could be some trouble up in here. It could be some trouble in here. Give me some of this elbow room. Right. And you just and you, 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 you're gone and you, you wake up not because your neighbor woke you up because there's turbulence. Boom, you feel the turbulence, you wake up out of your sleep and you wiping the drool off your mouth and you wonder what's going on. And boom, you hear, uh, please uh, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, blah, blah, blah. You know what the captain says. And he's all calm, cool, and collected. And you're thinking, he's like, and then when you belt yourself up, look at the red light on the thing and, and whatnot. Lift up your cup holders. All of that stuff, right? And you're thinking to yourself, you're thinking to yourself, like, why is he so calm? <laughs> don't, he, don't he feel the same bumps that we're going through? But see, I want you to think about that when it comes to the Lord. All of us go through turbulence. But when you don't have a cop perspective you don't know how he views the turbulence not only that you don't understand that he knows the direction and the destination that is our lives right there brothers and sisters because when we are caught in that panic state when we are caught reflecting on the things that affected us from trauma we don't feel that peace and security but when we hear on the plane that calm, cool, and collected voice that's a sense of peace and security knowing that somebody is trained to fly this plane because I can't go down and bust the door open and try to take over because we might crash. But if you were to think about your life and say to yourself when Jesus tells you it's just a little turbulence going on in your life and I want you to understand if you just come to me I have all of the plans and know the flight plans and the destination of where you ought to go 
So the turbulence won't kill you, but your anxiety will. The turbulence, it won't take you out, but the, but the trauma that you experience, if you don't deal with it, will. The, 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 the pilot knows what he's doing. Do you trust in what God is doing in your life? Why am I saying this this morning? Because it's through repenting daily, not being filled with shame and guilt, relinquishing this control that we have. We won't fly our own planes, but we will trust God in the promise that he's given us to rest in his control, to rest in his plan. Do you feel that this morning? What burdens your heart? Why haven't you taken the yoke that Christ offers? Because the promise is, I will give you rest. And simultaneously, he's removing the burden and the yoke. And this is why humility is important in our second point. Because after you've repented, you've turned to it and you look to rest in him, humility deals with our self-righteousness. It deals with, when you look at verse 29, the deep awareness we ought to have to our own self-righteousness. And I want you to think about this because our Lord is trying to help us because he embodies this wisdom. He's wisdom incarnate, essentially is what this text is saying as well. And so in the next verse, when we look at what he is saying, he's trying to say, I want you to take my yoke and I want you to learn from me because I want you to humble yourself. How do we know this? Key principle in interpreting the Bible. Scripture interprets scripture. Amen, somebody. So when you look at verse 25, he says, at, the, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden things, these things from the wise and understanding. And who do you reveal them to? You reveal them to the little children. I would say that this text is reminding us that the humility we ought to have is the same humility Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, in verse 3, when he's telling the disciples and the people around him to turn and become like children. And you understand with a child, it's, it's simply with that humility at a young, at, at infancy especially, all they can do is rely on the pen. They can't do anything themselves. They can't feed themselves. And they sleep all the time. They, have, they, they, they completely rely on the parents. When self-righteousness comes at the toddler age, think about how much they want to do on their own. Think about how much they want to try to have control. Now, there's good parenting where you, yes, you want them to put their own shoes on. Yes, you want them to do whatever. But then when they say, no, I got it. He goes, oh, excuse me. Or they go in the house and they turn on all the lights. If you don't turn off some of these lights, you're not paying MLGW. But I got off task. But I want you to, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. That this reality of through humility and a deep awareness of our self-righteousness comes from what we learn from God. This is why when he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Oh, 
My learning comes through the reality in which I have to humble myself to sit before Jesus. Even when seminarians, I love being in seminary, but I ran into some real self-righteous individuals. And because they came to seminary looking to be affirmed in everything that they already been taught. And see, I didn't grow up in that tradition. And thus, I came to seminary to learn what I don't even know. And so when I seen individuals interacting with professors, I seen a level of dudes reading Dutch reformers and old dead, other old dead guys who I've never read a day in my life arguing with the professor because of their own self-righteousness. And I think that this happens oftentimes, even in the church, especially in a multi-ethnic sense. Because you know what? Just a pastoral moment and a parenthetical moment. Just, we all are coming from different backgrounds and walks of life. Different church backgrounds. Some folks run and shout. Some people don't lift their hands. Y'all seen the little hand diagram of how people do it. Y'all can't hear me on the podcast, but I'm lifting my hands in the way. But some people are here with the, with the hands. Some people are here with the hands. Some people are here. Some people don't know how to shake and rock. But that's okay. Because we don't come here to show how much we learn. We come here to be a corporate body learning together. I, even as I break down the text every week, even as I look at the Bible, I don't see myself higher than anybody else in this room. And this is the reality in which Jesus is saying that he wants you to depict what he says in the next couple things. For I am gentle and lowly at heart. If we display the same humility that he displayed, that he, he gives to us, we're not blind to who, how he reveals himself. What are you saying, Michael? Well, I'm saying that we need the humility in order to take on Christ's yoke and to, and to learn from him so that our pride won't help us misconstrue his gentleness and his meekness. You can take his gentleness and his meekness for weakness or passivity. But the imagery that we see is not one of passiveness. It's one coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. One that helps us to see obedience and instruction in a way that we can follow him knowing that he's a God that's gracious. Because the yoke that gives us the imagery is Matthew saying to his readers that crossbar that goes around the neck of two oxen, that's the same thing that Jesus wants to put around your neck. But he doesn't want you to be broken by it. He doesn't want you to be wearisome. He doesn't want you to be burdened of having a heavy burden. Let me correct that. But he wants you to sense his gentleness. He wants you, he doesn't want to grab you like an animal and try to control you. He wants to caress you. He wants you to let you know that I'm Emmanuel. He wants to say to you that as I put this around your neck, it's it's not going to be too tight. In fact, as I put it around your neck, I want you just to move around and feel comfortable. Talk to me while I'm doing it. But see, oftentimes, our view of God is misconstrued in terms of his lordship because when we think about what he tries to do in our lives, we are dealing with our self-righteousness. And when he describes his resting, when he describes that you will find this rest, 
He describes a refreshing, a renewal, and a restoring. He doesn't describe something that is going to break you. Do you hear me this morning? Do you hear what the Bible is saying? And do you see the imagery that doesn't lead us to obedience and subordination and servitude, but it leads us to a gracious Jesus who loves us so much that he cares to instruct us and give us guidance through life? What does this guidance look like? It looks like what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 20 when he says, but that is not what you have learned from Christ. What have you learned from Christ? You haven't learned how to be, when he's talking in the previous verses, you're not learning how to be arrogant. You haven't learned how to be hard-hearted. You haven't learned how to ignore truth. You haven't learned all, all of these different things or immorality. What you've learned is assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed, renewed in the spirit of your minds, learn. And to put on the new self, cre created after the likeness of God through, I mean, in true righteousness and holiness, but not self-righteousness and pridefulness. This is what you learn. Why? Because self-righteousness does not appeal. When we are self-righteous, it's not appealing to God. But then at the same time, our self-righteousness leads us to not see a God who's appealing. So if control is the Lord of your life, this won't be appealing. If you were to say to yourself, image management is the, is the Lord of your life, this won't be appealing. If you were to say to yourself, trying to create my own gifts so that I may serve humanity, this won't be appealing. But he's talking to the weary and the burden, to those that are broken. And that reality is this, is that a deep awareness of your self-righteousness means you repent and have experienced this forgiveness. And what it does to your soul, it changes your comprehension of how God can instruct and inform your life. Brothers and sisters, this rest is one that you can't find in anybody and anything else. But then it also is a rest that you don't think about. And Richard mentioned this last week, but I want you to think about this. It's a rest that actually causes you to think about your neighbor. And the learning in finding the rest says it because when you look at Philippians 2, 1 through 5, because y'all don't believe me. When you look at Philippians 2, 1 through 5, he says, Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with and of one mind. Then he goes into how you live this out way more practically. Do not be selfish and ambitious, uh, <clears throat> selfish and do not do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, say humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Oh, my goodness. Let each of you not only uh, not only look to this, look, look, each of you look not only to the interest of your own, but also to the interest of yourselves. Why have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus? That transforms the way we think about when we come into these doors. Because there's a corporate 
aspect. This is a, a corporate reality that says, I don't come here with a bunch of strangers. I actually come here looking to serve. Y'all don't believe me. And it not only benefits yourself, but it allows your partner or your um, or your, your, your brother or sister in the Lord to rest. Y'all still don't believe me. Think about this. Tired single mother coming to the church, right? What would it look like for you to say, let me get that baby off your hands. You just enjoy your time in worship. Or let me hold the baby for a little bit. Let me feed him. Because I know he's crying and she's, she's distracting you or he, she is distracting you, etc. Or you may see somebody who needs help coming into the church. You may see something that, that as you look around, I was always taught to look around and see what you, how you can serve your brothers and sisters. But when you come in only looking to hear somebody preach or only looking to get some worship, you think in your mind, I'm coming to rest. But what the Bible is saying, actually, when you come in here with a humble heart, knowing your own, having a deep awareness of your own self-righteousness, you're not selfish, but you're actually looking to how you can serve your brother and sister who you hadn't seen all week. Ah, do y'all get that? And so this helps us to know that then what I learned is not how to only read the Bible or just come and practice going to church, but I learned how to be a brother or sister in the family of God. There's some aunts and uncles. There's some great-grandmas, some great-grandpas, some grandpas and grandmas. There's a spiritual family that draws us together that allows us to see what rest looks like. That's essentially what I'm saying, but it comes through humility, but it also comes through a growing knowledge of God. In verse 3, we don't realize how God intimately wants to lead us to this promise of rest. Matthew doesn't necessarily, he leaves us with a cliffhanger because he says in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He just kind of leaves it at that, but then he goes into chapter 12 and then you see an example of Jesus and his disciples and Jesus making a declaration of I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because what has happened is the Pharisees have created all of these laws, extra ceremonial laws that has then mean, meant that you're not supposed to do what a certain thing on the Sabbath. And what Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath for a reason. Because your rest is not found in you keeping laws. That becomes the yoke for a Jewish person. But you see, this is, can also be translated today by the way that we treat people the way they come into our doors. Right? The way that we love people. What we expect or how we have a perception of an individual. Even the church has been bad at trying to change someone's behavior at the door before they see God transform their heart. And this is what a restfulness looks like. But then I want you to look at the text a little bit deeper. Because as I was meditating on this, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Initially, I wanted to focus on the easiness of the, of, of the yoke and I wanted to focus on the lightness of the burden. I said to myself, because all of us focus, many of us focus on the yoke and the burden, but not how easy and light it is. But not only that, we have to look at whose burden it is and whose yoke it is. So if we look at Isaiah 9 and 6 and we just kind of switched out that personal program, pronoun of my and we put a wonderful counselor or a prince of peace for my for, for the prince of peace. 
yoke is easy. And the prince of pieces, burden is light. For the wonderful counselors, yoke is easy. And for the young, the wonderful counselors, burden is light. It actually helps us in understanding the character of God in a deeper way that we know that, wow, a prince who is peaceful will not put something on me that I can't bear. A prince who is a wonderful counselor will actually begin to do surgical work on my heart and I will be able to work through all of the emotional trauma, spiritual fatigue. So it's not on simply on how easy it is, on how light it is, it's whose it is that helps us. Why? Because it's about perspective. It's about perspective when you look at this, this notion in which you can be legalistic and miss it. That you're trying to keep the law of the yoke. You're trying to keep the law of the burden. You want to work under that. You want to make sure you're doing it right. Am I going to church this amount of time? Am I making it to community group? Am I doing this? Am I serving in the church? We're not trying to make people do more. <laughs> We're trying to help us care for one another. And that's what the Bible teaches us. My son, just the other day, we had the community group and uh, two of his little friends were asking for candy canes off our tree when they were leaving. And he's become very territorial. <laughs> they said, can we have a candy cane? We said, oh, yeah, absolutely. He jumps in front of the tree and say, no. And I'm like, what's wrong? It's only two candy canes. And I kneel down to get eye level with him just so he can know that I'm coming to him. And I say, son, there's 50 other candy canes on the tree. It's only two. But a growing knowledge of God helps us to see that whatever things that plague us, whatever things that cause us to see the wrong perspective, if you know that God has come down to you and just trying to show you a greater perspective of who he is to change our limited worldview and to help us understand who he is in an intimate way, as Charday said in that video, then we won't focus on what is taken off. We'll focus on what he's put on. And this comes because rest if, as we know it, if we were to look at this text, is the benefit of knowing what it means to be in your own bed and to sleep in your own bed. Some of y'all got sleep numbers and tempopedics. Some of y'all got California king size, queen size. I knew when I got married, I needed a king size bed. Because we had a queen size when we got married, but I was beat up every morning. My wife was dropping bows on me. Boom. Bam. Back. And I was just like, every time I'm waking up, I'm, I'm feeling beat down and bruised, man. And so we finally got a king size bed. And I realized that when we were sleeping in the king size bed, if I rolled over and wanted to touch it, I had to roll over again just to touch it. <laughs> because the bed was so big. But it changed my life because my restfulness was a bit different. 
But if you see your life and you understand what it means to rest in Jesus, you know that as the song described, it's like an ocean. It's bigger than a king size bed that you can just fall into. And he engrafts you. And he allows you to feel the warmth of his love and his care through repentance. That's your pillow. Through humility. That's the pillow top. And through a growing knowledge of knowing who he is. That's how massive it is. And it's through his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you, Jesus, because you are one who reminds us each and every day of your tender, loving care. And you help us, Father, to trust in you and all that you do in our lives. And I pray, God, that you continue to help us to find rest in you through repentance daily, through humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves before one another, and knowing who you are in a more intimate way. For it is in Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people say. Let us continue to worship God with the gifts of God.